Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present a multiplicity of creative readings from those who joined us at the Wisdom Council Symposium. My name is Joshua Whitehead, and I am a research assistant at the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, the Bigani, and Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation, comprising the Chiniki, the Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. This reading was recorded during a Tea House Symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council brought together a small council of senior practitioners in the arts who are mostly Black, Indigenous, and folks of color to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as What our communities need now? Memory and forgetting care of elders in racialized communities, community formations they have experienced, and practices and strategies that might be use or of interest in the present moment. This interview was recorded as part of that gathering's work. This interview is a special one in which we feature multiple members of the Wisdom Council, including Lillian Allen, Fred Waugh, Lenore Gijig, Samaro Cambarelli, Christos, Aruna Srivastava, and Richard Fung. Each of these readers, in their own way, demonstrate the power of wisdom, the power of poetics, the power of prose, essay, photo, image, performance, and reference powerful figures in the larger BIPOC queer writing stratosphere, including Jamaica Kincaid, Franz Fanon, Rita Wong, and Sharon Prowell-Turner. It's a great honor to be presenting these folks to you in this fashion, in this very intimate way in which they share their works as the pinnacle of the Wisdom Council podcast series. Lillian Allen is a professor of creative writing at Ontario College of Art and Design University, or OCAD-U. She is a multidisciplinary and experimental poet. Allen's creativity crosses many genres, including radio, theater, music, and film. As a writer, a featured artist, and producer-director and national radio show host, Allen is a recognized authority and activist on issues of diversity and culture, cultural equity, cross-cultural collaborations, and the power of arts and education. BC poet Fred Waugh's most recent project is a collaboration with Rita Wong about the Columbia River, titled Beholden, A Poem As Long As The River. His book Screed, the collected earlier poems, 1962 to 1991, was published in 2015. Hai Makamak, playing Chinese, an interactive poem is available online. See the biography for the show notes. He lives in Vancouver and on Kootenai Lake. Lenore Gijig is a citizen of the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation on the Saugeen Bruce Peninsula and resides on the home of the Chippewas of Nawash Unceded First Nation. Lenore is a storyteller, poet, 
award-winning author, naturalist, mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. Her long-awaited first collection of poetry, Running on the March Wind, was published in 2015. Currently, she works delivering programs that teach about the natural and the cultural history of the peninsula and the Great Lakes, and helps area visitors to better understand their connections to the land and to the water. David Garneau, Métis, is a visual arts professor at the University of Regina, whose practice includes painting, curation, and critical writing. He recently co-curated with Kathleen Ash Milby, Transformer, Native Art in Light and Sound, National Museum of the American Indian, New York. Moving forward, never forgetting with Michelle Lavallee, an exhibition concerning the legacies of Indian residential schools, other forms of aggressive assimilation and reconciliation at the Mackenzie Art Gallery in Regina, and with Secrecy and Dispatch with Tess Alice, an international exhibition about massacres of Indigenous people and memorialization for the Campbelltown Arts Centre, Sydney, Australia. Smaro Cambarelli is an Abby Benachair in Canadian Literature at the University of Toronto. Her research interests include CanLit as a disciplinary formation and diaspora and Indigenous studies. Christos is a Menominee poet and activist and was born in San Francisco. In her work, she examines themes of feminism, social justice, and Native rights. She is the author of several collections of poetry, including Not Vanishing, Dream On, and Firepower. Christos's work has been featured in the anthologies This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color, edited by Cherie Moraga and Gloria Anzaldua, and Living the Spirit, a Gay American Indian Anthology, edited by Will Roscoe. Aruna Srivastava has spent many years working as an anti-racism educator in various community-based arts and academic contexts, focused in more recent years on the complexities and intersections of disability, illness, age, and trauma in this work. As a racialized arrivant slash settler who has been a guest in many indigenous lands across the world, she has found a home for quite some time in what the Blackfoot call Mokinstis in Treaty 7 territory. Richard Fong is a video artist, cultural critic, and professor emeritus in the Faculty of Art at OCAD University. Much of his work deals with the legacy of colonialism in his birthplace of Trinidad and Tobago, Asian diaspora, and the intersection of race, gender, and queer sexuality. Honors include the Bell Canada Award, Canada Council for the Arts for Outstanding Achievement in Video Art, the Toronto Arts Award for Media Art, the Kessler Award, City University of New York, for Substantial Contribution to the Field of LGBTQ Studies, and the Bonham Award for Sexual Diversity Studies from the University of Toronto.
So I'm going to invite Lily and Alan to come and kick us off. Yay! Woo! You who know what the past has been, you who work in the present tense, you who see true to the future, come if we work together. I come sit a while with we. I make we drink tea. I make we talk. I make we analyze. You have been burned by vanguardism. Ism. Come make we give you a little nurturing. Come sit a while with we. I make we drink tea. I make we talk. I make we strategize. You who create from your labor. You sweat from your heart. You, <laughs> when we sit down and look at the shisting and we check out the way that things been, we have to see. We have to see it. It ran how the system still. We have to see it. We have to see it. The system in a really bad way. A way it a defend. A way it a defend. <laughs> Come sit a while with we. I make we drink tea. I make we talk. I make we analyze. I make we strategize. I make we work together. Make we revel in the streets if that's the beat. Make we revel in the streets if that's the beat. Protest, demonstrate, chant, 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 chant. Revolutionary Tea Party. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, so like, these kind of gatherings, that's what I feel like it is. It's a revolutionary tea party. <laughs> so that's me. So I'll read two pieces for you. The one is How to Become a Writer. I developed this um, because people used to ask me, um, especially for writing became so so much uh, you know so accessible. How do you become a writer, right? And it's mostly from people who think there's a trick to it that you can become a writer without writing, right? <laughs> You're right. That's how you become a writer. So I figure I take all the things that people were thinking about writing, or we have heard about writing, and then you know, it's a little coming. You got also. Um, Use the kind of grittiness and uh, the style, influenced by the style of uh, Jamaica Kincaid's Girl. And if anybody's ever read that piece, that's really a lovely, lovely piece about what is to be a young girl growing up, all the things that she heard about the young girl uh, growing up in the Caribbean. So, uh, but first of all, you have to ask me how to become a writer. How do you become a writer? <laughs> Everybody. This is how you become a writer. <laughs> Discipline. Write like this. Get images down. Write what you know. It's an interesting life. It makes for better writing. Show. Don't tell. Don't bore the reader. Writing is not life. Writing is language. The I in your story, it's not you. Nobody cares about you. Only fools will think it's you, and then you can make it all up and dazzle them. 
This is how you spill the family secrets. Exploit <laughs> grudges, mean characteristics of your ex. <laughs> Why else would you want to be a writer? Write every day, write a little every day, it adds up. This is how you go for your first million words. This is how you take care of the quantity while God takes care of the quality. <laughs> Don't worry about grammar, worry about grandma. No writer worth her salt can spell for soul. This is how you imitate what you love before you get your own style. This is how you slant a sentence in a paragraph. This is how you write a poem undulating. A poem is nothing without a good idea. This is how you get a good idea. Believe in yourself, really. This is how you know redemption. This is how you believe in words in a turn of phrase. This is how you write a story that heals, an image that breaks the heart wide. This is how you open, read. This is how you do not get stale, read. Read what you love and read what you don't. This is how you break from sentence. This is how words can liberate you. This is how you hone your craft, write. This is how you write, write regularly. Don't write to get love, write to spread love. And remember, it's easier to mend a broken poem than a broken Good. You, you escaped the cliche. <laughs> I was setting you up for the cliche. You escaped the cliche. Uh, this is how it's not always about you. This is how you are always about you. This is how you edit for substance and grammar. This is what structure is like. Write for yourself, edit for the reader. This is how you create communication. This is how you do not ask your best friend, your family, or your lovers to read your writing. These are not always honest people. <laughs> this is how not to get published. This is how you will not call yourself a write in public before you are published, especially with the publisher who could not make it as writer. I know that's a logo. This is how to get published. Go to literary events and hobnob with publisher. This is how to go out after the event for a drink. This is where everybody gets tipsy. This is where language leaves. <laughs> this is how some publishers like to discover. This is how to become an up-and-coming star. This is when you decide there's more to writing than just writing. This is how you decide not to give up your day job or leave your employed lover for your art. This is how you believe in yourself, really, believe in yourself. This is how writing decides you. This is how you search for self. This is how images find you. This is how you become a writer. <laughs> This other poem uh, was written on a retreat in primary colors and handed over to Larissa and Samara for their book. And um, so it's agency, urgency, and insurgency. So it comes out of the discussion and all that we know and so forth. So it's like a bow. Open the portal, spring mix the top mountains. A stoic watchfulness, rumbling flashes of thunder, solidified and still, air and wood, the comfort we clothe with greens of cedar and crystal clear blue of the deepening sky. Could this be the center of healing, diffused in laughter and fullness? 
we pay homage to our ancestral longing for peace, a peace that is just a piece of being whole, of all that is given, of all we have given, our labor to a labor of struggle, a dreaming never ceasing, threatens to pull us under sometimes, but always will carry us over. We rest on the backbone of this land, this our land in this land, its vertebrae steadying our feet, our right to exist in fullness. Cosmic trails of heart beats becomes the drum. Flash, flash. Dragonflies are just just mosquitoes with flashlights who grew tired of feeding. This is false news. <laughs> a war in numbness, cabling on demand, network di dictatorship so loud it squints and blurs eyesight. No one can hear the sound of truth when it dies, even when you turn the volume up high. Falsification is an evil, an evil, an evil, a spirit born of the transactional world, extraction. Least we forget the chemistry and the physics and an organical interconnectedness of things beyond anything that is created or destroyed. The arc of justice hovers over the universe, cold, train, trills, extending language, texture, the new imperative of creativities, artists render invisible and invisible freedom, tuning, tuning. Franz Fanon says, each generation must discover its mission and will fulfill or betray it. Corporate symbiosis and false cosmological contraptions fill our spaces. Faith is but a vision for the oppressed, clawing through the hell and hellishness. Production of capital as king, of king as male and white, supremists, a mudfuck mean spirit of a beast. I will blaze indignation, decolonize the indecent sprawl, emblazon it with art. This cis-coloration, an omniscient intrusion, breathing in our dreams. Stars hold space for our secret divinations, subversive desires, winking in the dark of night. Through modern disparities, we message each other across time. We are this planet, this mother, twinkling incessantly. We reach back from the forward future to bend the art that hovers. We are now because we are here. We are the land and the light. We, the percussive movement of air, the breathing of rocks, where the water before and after, our voices between spaces. Listen for the secret code of revolution, DNA of trees. Listen, holy universe is recentering. Open the portal, reach back, and from the future, agency, urgency, insurgency, agency, 
urgency, insurgency, agency, urgency, insurgency. We're now, we're thus, we're here. Project. Uh, um, Rita Wong and I have been involved with for several years. On, on, it's a project uh, working with visual artists in, uh, on the Columbia River. And uh, the Columbia River is the fourth largest river in North America. It has more dams on it than any other river in North America. And uh, right now, Canada and the United States are involved in renegotiating the Columbia River Treaty, which is 50, over 50 years old. And it involves a lot of money and uh, power sharing and so forth. Uh, the big issue, of course, is the salmon that were taken away from uh, uh, the majority of the indigenous people who lived along the, the river, as well as uh, everyone else who lives along the river. In any case, uh, we the project became um, a project where Rita. Rita wrote on one side of the river, handwriting, and I wrote on the other side of the river, a poem that in, in, in typed text, if you like. And one of our artist friends stretched the Columbia River out, which is it's 2,000 kilometers long, and he stretched it out on a, in a horizontal uh, fashion so that we could do this. And we printed it as a banner, if you like. It's 114 feet long, and it's part of the... Uh, part of the show, the art show, with a lot of other art. And so it hangs in the gallery and people walk around, blah, blah, blah. And then we published it as a book, uh, a page turner. <laughs> <laughs> broke the river into pages. So I'm going to just read a couple of sections from this. Uh, Listen, on my way to get a pail of water down by the creek, the dumb, the dumb, Columbia River starts humming. Its invisible Kootenai chi path, breathing what exists through itself, is called as is, meaning joined to the water. Here's the cadence as a wet failure to Pacifica, meanders slow and murmurs love. This skin of Earth's contour, hello, sister tongue, hello, winding mirror, Mahalia, goodbye, mother, goodbye, weaver woman, hello, David Thompson. Now this quiet water maps diesel along the marshes of locomotion, crossing north down the map of the river of heaven, steamboat mountain. Are you worried about a future? Nowitka. Those are Chinook uh, words. Uh, one section of the river that's particularly close to my home is the, it's called, used to be called, the, still called the Arrow Lakes, but most of the river has become simply reservoirs. Anyway, Roosevelt Lake, or Root Reservoir, is uh, behind Grand Coulee. I relax. But this dam, this section I'm going to read is uh, um, a reservoir behind the Deep Side Dam, which dammed up the Arrow Lakes and uh, dislocated um, uh, about 3,000 inhabitants, uh, killed their farms, killed their livelihood. Um, it was also the home of the Sinaiks, uh, the territory of the Sinaiks and the Tanaha uh, nations. Uh, 
And in, in order to negotiate the river, one of the, re one of the ways that the uh, federal government negotiated, got involved in negotiating the river was to declare the Sinaites extinct. So in 1956, the Sinaites uh, were declared extinct in Canada, although they, they weren't really, there's, there's a few of them, but most of them were, had long since been put into the Colville Confederate, the Colville uh, Reserve in the south. Someone's village has become Mud Lake. Bull trout's waiting for some silk-free water. How are you, blue camas, shaken in the dust? Just call the wetlands back. Find a river you can trust. Where are you, duckweed? You can't grow here anymore. The sloughs are gone. The birds have disappeared. Saying goodbye to the cottonwood snow. The shore is sad and silent. Many dreams drowned in this reservoir. Using water this way is violent. What happened to the kokanee? The spawning channels flooded. Now the river is just a mirror of how our greed's cold-blooded. These arrow lakes filled up and up and killed the estuaries of the creeks, flooded fields of grass and drowned the orchards, submerged ancestral Sinai's graves, those people in the way declared extinct, it's true. Oatscott swamped old family farms, old game trails, just a memory silted now and dried to dust at drawdown, shelter day, no shelter after all. This valley could be filled with love. Oh, lonely animal eyes at Caribou Point, blown up for a new road. So sing the blues to be this river, washed in misery, loss, and sadness. Not breathing deep, just silent nights alone. How much you'll miss the touch of salmon red and sedge grass edge. The churning of the minto up to Arrowhead, and then the burning too. Yeah, ain't this damn messed up your plan to keep this spirit flowing with respect? Will the riparian ever be repaired? Will the salmon ever return? Has the river taught us nothing? When will we ever learn? And I'll just read the last, very last section, which was up there for a bit. Um, as the river approaches uh, near Portland, and it reaches the ocean at, at a point, it hits the, hits the Pacific surf at a very violent place. <laughs> and uh, many, Hundreds, of, you know, thousands of boats have been sunk trying to get back in into the river through this very violent place. But it's a fantastic place where the river meets the surf, and it is. So I feel I'm lucky, even grateful, to have listened hard to the river's voice. Sometimes it's just those gulls or children screaming from the greed of Fork Tongue Point, not the voice of the river that moaned Cape Disappointment in 1788. When the river sang clear, shining water, those Europeans could have heard its visionary recital that this river is the way home, the return to what we have left. This is the place where I come from. This is the place where I come from. I was on my way to get a pail of water down by the creek. I heard a hum, the dum, the dum, hollow ocean, river's mouth. Thanks for the listening to this stream of words become the surf, and now the river's voice is free to roar within the sound of silence. I'll just end by pointing out that the river can't speak for itself. And as we play with it and manipulate it, it, has a, it maintains a kind of silence that isn't silent. But uh, it's that silence that I think needs to be listened, listened to. And uh, I think I feel my job or our, our, our responsibility is to find the language that can help the river speak back 
the creation of butterflies and what I'd like you to do firsthand is to think of the, the, the metaphors that uh, are butterflies or the symbol the symbolism of the butterfly uh, one is the immortal soul the psyche the imagination so keep that in mind there were the first Anishinaabe children, and they were taken care of by the animals. The animals took care of these children and loved these children. Mako, the bear, made sure that the children had a nice warm place to sleep. And the bear made sure that they had food to eat. Maingan, the wolf, was the protector of these children, kept these children safe from harm. The other animals, Swagosh, the fox, Esabon, the raccoon, Wabazo, the rabbit, uh, Jidamo, the red squirrel, these were all the playmates of the children. And because these children were the first children and the only children, they imitated their animal companions. They moved around like the animals. They vocalized like the animals. And that's how it was. And then one day, Nanabush was going by, and he, he saw these children, and he watched these children, and he said to himself, these children don't know who they are. These children need to know who they are. So he stooped down, and he scooped up a handful of pebbles. And he took those pebbles and he tossed them into the air and they turned into butterflies and they were fluttering all through the air. But when the Anishinaabe children saw these butterflies, they jumped up on their two legs and they went running, dancing, chasing the butterflies. This is the time of year when a certain butterfly or butterfly species, makes a very long journey from Canada to the United States, or through the United States to Mexico. This is called a monarch butterfly. The monarch butterfly is now a threatened species because of habitat loss. Here in Canada and the United States, the habitat loss is because of the milkweed, the only plant that the butterfly lays its <coughs> eggs on. For years or decades, that plant was classified a noxious weed. 
and landowners were encouraged to get rid of it, pull it out. In Mexico, habitat loss is because of logging, because of forest fires. And then on top of that, the species is threatened with these freak snowstorms that would come in and devastate millions upon millions of, of butterflies. <coughs> My youngest daughter, when she heard about the plight of the butterflies, she turned to me and she said, Mommy, if all the butterflies die, does that mean children won't be able to walk anymore? Our elders have told us plants can live without people, animals can live without people, but who can we live without? Who can we live without? Thank you. So I haven't adapted. This is just from a keynote that I did at um, Medicine Hat, and it's just the introduction. Um, so you'll get the, it's another context. Anyways, so I acknowledge that we meet on Treaty 7 territory. You've probably heard this sort of introduction before. Treaty or territorial acknowledgements are important courtesies, but are often rushed, their weight and meaning blurred. Given the nature of my talk, I thought I'd take a minute to deepen my acknowledgement. So the numbered treaties are legal and sacred covenants between the Crown and the original inhabitants and stewards of the Great Plains and North Central Woodlands of the territory now known as Canada. The Crown is the legal name of the British government whose rights in this matter were transferred to Canada's Crown at Confederation. According to British law, Canada's legal existence depended upon securing written settlements with the people who were here first. Treaty 7, signed in 1877, is an agreement between, on one side, settlers, their heirs, and anyone accepting the social contract of becoming a Canadian. And on the other side, the people then known as Indians, in this case, it's the Sasika, Kainai, Kani, Tutsina, and Stony Nakoda. The spirit of the treaties is that in exchange for sharing their land, First Nations people are compensated, have reserved lands, and special rights in perpetuity. Elders understand that the treaty is with the creator, a sacred obligation which includes our other than human relations. I acknowledge that in addition to the treaty signatories, this area was shared at various times by Pre, Soto, Métis, others, and ancient others. I recognize the elders, knowledge keepers, land protectors, and cultural producers past and present. I am a grateful guest. So great to be here. I was thinking when Lillian read that uh, one of the most terrifying memories I had was when I was going around the country reading from my one and only poetry book. And I read it Western France. And I read after Nicole Broussard and Lillian Allen. So <laughs> I was feeling so. Anyway, I'm going to uh, share with you a very truncated version of a journal I kept the first time I went to Pagnuton, Bakhnaya, Nunavut. Day two, Halmut, 
weather, delay, labor, a triangulation of conditions. It's through the conjunction that I have entered Nunavut. My back aches. Every time our flight to Pang is rescheduled and cancelled yet again because of strong winds in the Paddington Fjord, we had to load and load, check in, claim back, pile together, move, store and reload not only our individual heavy backpacks, but 54 bins of dry food. The flight was cancelled twice yesterday and three times already today. Not the kind of labor associated with my sense of school. This is wait time, as Lindsay puts it. Wait time here means understanding and respecting the weather. Meanwhile, I'm exploring Ihamid. Day three, Ihamid. Two more cancelled flights. Caribou beats at Andrew's father's place, a lovely home, warm hospitality, getting a sense of the image, domestic and work patterns in the town. After dinner, I hiked down the hill and explored the old cemetery right on the edge of the bay. Day four, still in Harriet. We crossed the Arctic Circle, still too windy to land in Bang, spent half a day in Kik, a hamlet of a few hundred people, I went for a walk as far as the inn and the church. The four young girls who followed me giggled as they heard me practice pronouncing aloud Inuit names syllabically, starting with Kik's full name, Kikiktajwak, Big Island. I feel withdrawn tonight. My default response to our group's dynamics, pulled inwards and outwards, trying to figure out the emerging relations, the tensions, why I'm here, what here is. Day five, back in Hamlet. We crossed the Arctic Circle yet again. This is becoming a nice pattern. If Pan continues to be too windy, I may end up visiting all the hamlets on Baffin Island. Today we got further north than Kik, Clyde River, Kalkitukapik. Day eight, Pagnitu. A lot is happening. Nothing is happening. I've been on the edge and irritable. I'm here at Shirk's expense. I'm supposed to be working on a project, but I have no project. I've been looking for a project as if it had been a hidden object. Fault that I should have known better. This is Bush School. Bush School pedagogy means little structure. But for the two hours of Inuktuktuk lessons a day and Peter's late morning lectures, there is little else that is planned. This is relational pedagogy, a serial and cumulative process that unravels at, as, uh, at a fast or slow pace, depending on our positionalities, our lived experiences, our age, where we go, what we do, who we meet and talk with, what risks we're willing to take, where we sleep. Because of my back problems, I'm the only one who's billeted. I'm staying with Margaret and Andrew Nakashuk. Everyone else is camping. Pagnuktum, day 10. Last night I asked Margaret and Andrew about the Inuit map on Camp of Cumberland Sound that is painted on the outside of the bedroom door. They laid it on the floor of the small living room and we sprawled around it, our elbows touching, feeling each other's breaths. I followed Andrew's finger tracing one camp after another. What looks entirely empty in Halunat map of Cumberland Sound is densely marked in this Inuit map. Here, see? My father still has a cabin there. We used to go from here to there, and his finger glides over land and ice and water. Every name has a story, the past alive in the present. 
As I lay awake in my bed, a foam mattress on the floor in the small spare room of the house, I became aware of the need to realign my priorities here. What's crucial is not having a project, but being part of the process, embodying learning, crossing the cultural divides without necessarily seeking to bridge them. How to describe this in a short report? This means respect for, surrender to, one's own sense of discomfort and vulnerability, moving across different semiotic modes, engaging with different and often unsettling modalities of cognition and relationality, risking failure. I must curtail my feelings of Elira, iluktitok, meaning being over-mindful of the ethics of non-intervention and cultivate instead my ikhuma, the Inuit concept of maturing in response to a place and its social relations. I talked to Margaret about this over breakfast. Here, come, she said in response. I'll show you how to use the ulu. Although she knows it would take me a while to acquire the grace with which she slices vegetables, she didn't give up on me. She gave me one of her ulus. Second wing, Pan. Margaret tutors me. I'm to be interviewed on Pan's radio station, along with a few others from our group, in Inuktuktuk. A staged interview since my Inuktuktuk is rudimentary, but I practice like I never practiced a lesson before. Inuktuktuk with a Greek accent. <laughs> I went to the school early this morning, and while I was unlacing my boots, I overheard Kevin talking to Dusky in the kitchen. Have you noticed how small his changed? You mean he laughs all the time? Kevin, so right. I've begun, I've begun to laugh a lot here. Laughter is too easy, Pang writes Lindsay. Indeed, the Pangmiut smile and laugh a lot. They laugh at you and with you. Their laughter is ambiguous, a sign of a self-reflexive approach to the living conditions under colonialism, what Jabed Yarnapuk calls a living technology. It stands for their Isumat Satuk, their way of sharing knowledge, the interconnectedness of experiential living and Inuit philosophy of life. If laughter is easy in pain, so are tears, for tears of pain often flow as openly as those of laughter. Here, laughter and tears affirm the body, vocalize what the body remembers, release strength, circulate one's agency, what's more, the contagious. Third week, on the land. On the land for four days now, 2010s, Besides our group, many of Jacob's and Joannes' relatives have joined us. Seal hunting time, gathering time, play time, sewing time, workshop time, crying time. It was too cold in winter last night, and so it became games night to keep warm. We played Aksach for over an hour. Two teams, women versus men, old and young, agile and not. It's a keep away ball game, our ball made of socks. No rules, no limits to catch zones. You can kick, grab, tickle, caress, pull, hug, climb over one's back, pins, drag. <laughs> the rest of the games were a bit difficult for me. I sat on the sidelines to watch, together with the Inuit women and the children, Lisa, Margaret, Lipa, Ulipita, Rosie, Evie, and Helen. Jacob was the master of ceremonies. He tried to drag me into the circle of players a few times, but I couldn't possibly hop up and down the, uh, the rugged terrain with someone else tightly wrapped around my waist, head between my legs. But it was all so funny to watch. We laughed and laughed until we could no longer hold back and we all let go 
peeing our pants with abandon. And then we laughed some more until our bellies ached and I was almost out of breath. I lay flat on the ground, my arms stretched out, wet and happy, my tears of laughter quickly drying on my face. Day eight on the land, learning, unlearning. My sense of what is important and proper is the past. I delight in being a vulnerable learner, not afraid of making mistakes or offending them inadvertently, not afraid of being embarrassed. I laugh with them and at myself. I've learned to slice arctic char, arctic sushi, as you call it. When it was my turn to cook the other day, I made Greek chickpeas that we ate with palaoba. I ate raw seal, drank seal blood. I can't stand fermented walrus. It's like chewing plastic, smelling like dirty feet, and I told Jake or so. But I kept going back for more raw seal until I realized that I had more than my share. But I made a deal with little Samuel, eight years old. I gave him my last chocolate bar, and he gave me a piece of his share of seal brains, partnering cultural appetites inside the gift economy on the land. Samuel and I sit on a rock over the stone flats where the seal intestines are left, a feast offering to the birds. He eats his chocolate and waits to see what I'll do with my bloody fingers. I lick them first and then go down to the shoreline to wash my hands. In a tidal pool around a big rock, I see Evie, Jacob's sister. She's gathering clams. Do you want to help? She asks. Sure I do, I reply. I wade my way towards her. Samuel following. You watch her, he tells Siri. She may eat them all. We laugh. I feel it at homeness. To have a reputation, however bad, means you're part of the place. <laughs> yeah. So I made these books to come here. So if you want one, I have them in my bag. This uh, first one is for Christine Welch, who did teach film at the University of Victoria. She's retired now. <laughs> We've had a lot of really wonderful conversations at 8 o'clock at night after something was over with, right, in the hotel while we were getting ready to go to sleep. <clears throat> I'm crackers, so I throw saltines up on my roof to feed the crows. Patter of their little feet is better than Santa Claus, who in any case hasn't shown up in 50 years. This provides rapt amusement for my cats below, who cackle instinctively carnivorous, their fat bellies swaying. Crows are dismissed and despised, as I am, by the important noisy world, which thinks so much of itself. There's hardly room for anyone else. Certainly salt and white flour are bad for their small hearts, about as deadly as the air we're all breathing. But the crows and I are alive right now. We don't care about anything except our hunger. This broken arrow of my heart is all yours, feathers ragged with our silences, poverty of trust. We know Indians, our own bodies as shifty, unreliable, cold, unloving savages. We shift these oppressor weapons in our worn hands, cutting each other and ourselves, looking through blood to see where we might be safe enough 
to drop them without harming anyone. Between us, an unspoken wall of dead, millions of our relatives taught us this known endurance of rifles, cavalry raids, which is called the taming of the Wild West, over the mute protest of our souls. I want to honor you, become a soaring hawk with gifts of wind. History hoods me in the dark, groping in fear for flight we are not allowed. How many indigenous women, survivors of death camps, embrace time and laugh together, pulling out the poison along the shaft of our breath? Megwatch. So, um, what I'm going to ask people to do if they have not done so already. There's a, a late friend of ours, Sharon Crew, who, whose work we launched here at Teen House last year. And after our talk about institutions a little earlier, um, I was going to read her second story called The Madhouse, which is about this department of English <laughs> and her struggle to get her thesis through and into the light of day, which she wasn't able to do. She passed her, she got her MA, um, but her thesis never did see the light of day. Mm. So in her posthumous book, Creole, Creole Matisse of French Canada, which is available through Canada's Press, she, she tells two stories. One is called The Madhouse One, and the other is called The Madhouse Two. Um, and she talks about the process of being here in what she calls Chinook country. And um, as a, uh, an older student, um, getting, uh, I think she was probably in her late 30s, um, trying, to get, trying to get this thesis through. So after the after we got the, the book uh, published, I tried to find that thesis. It was sealed by the university um, legally. They said the legal uh, university legal said that uh, we couldn't. Uh, she couldn't um, do what you would normally do with the thesis, which is put it in the library, send it to the archives, and so. So it was put in an envelope, and, and this is the olden days when we were doing all things like um, online thesis. Um, so we all uh, we all put our versions of um, the thesis after her oral defense into a, um, envelopes, and we gave them to the, the then faculty of graduate studies here at the university. And I spent the last several months trying to find that document, and it has just gone missing, which is completely antithetical to anything that graduate studies faculties believe and libraries and so forth. That this, the work of graduate students and, and academics is, is supposed to be archived and kept, which is why we keep saying we need written documents. When indigenous students say we would like to do an oral um, document or a digital <coughs> document, or whatever, we keep saying no, we need it written down so that we can keep it in our library. So what I was going to read was the second one, The Madhouse 2. Um, and um, 
I apologize, I'm somewhat visually impaired, and, and all I brought was my phone. Any, anyway, I think uh, what, what I was going to talk about was the process of grief, grieving um, a, 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 friend, a friend of, of our, a friend of mine, and also because of what this, this part of this um, symposium is about, what is it that we do with the work? How is it that we remember and archive the work of our elders? Um, Sharon was a Métis elder, and um, how, how, do we, how do we keep that in memory? Um, she's, she's now been dead for two and a half years, and um, I thought a lot about that in our conversations, about remembering the people who, who um, have created a, a safe environment for those of BIPOC folks and so forth to, to discuss what's going on for us and to also create. And one of the things that Sharon certainly taught me was A, how to be a different kind of academic, and B, that, that I was a creative person, although I identify as an academic. And in editing her work, uh, I learned a lot, and I also learned a lot, I think that's why I spoke so passionately about thinking about academia as a, a changing space because in 1993 or 94 when Sharon was trying to get her thesis done, um, simple MA thesis, it shouldn't have been a difficult process, she had a hell of a time and in a way that she wouldn't have had now. It wouldn't have happened either. But her thesis, her actual thesis is lost. It's, it doesn't exist any longer. And, um, and, I, and I think that's a crime, and it's in all the sense of that word, and it's also a crime against an, excuse me, an indigenous Métis woman who has some very important work to show us, and all that exists of that work is the, the, the work that was published, the, the creative aspect of that work that was published in her in her books, but what she grieved at the end of her life, what she grieved was in fact the theoretical, the feminine, the, you know, the, the, the work or how she theorized trauma, her own trauma. And that has gone. It's, it's disappeared. Um, and so I, th I think about that a lot and whether that's something to just accept, to, to recognize that there are a lot of ways in which um, writing and art and so forth simply do disappear and that that's okay but i also remember that that our friend was not okay with that um, and that she was very bitter about how the university of calgary and this department that we're sitting in the english department did not do well either so that's that's my piece so Read her book if you can. She's she's a, um, she's published a lot uh, of, of books, and um, she now has a corpus of work that we can we can study and read from.
90 years old and I'm meeting her for the first time. I was working as a sales clerk and Bosco Holder came and he introduced himself because I didn't know. That's how I got introduced to the dancing also. How you married your first We have inside and outside family, and um, so there are a number of things I want to do. One of the things I think is to amend this film to have a conversation with other people in Trinidad. It was purposely I, I was thinking of Trinidadian and Trinidadian viewership when I was doing it, and there are a number of things. So Nang I think of as a queer straight woman because she wrote her own script. She was born illegitimate in 1934. She made her own way. She was a survivor or a overcomer. She had five legal husbands. There's another one who may or may not have been legal. Um, you could see her attitude to her husband. Um, in the 40s, she uh, was kind of discovered by Bosco Holder. She ended up being the dance partner of Jeffrey Holder and his first photographic muse. And Jeffrey Holder you know, won Tony Awards for The Wiz, which he directed on Broadway. So she has this kind of artistic history, but there are a couple of things that interested me. One of them is I wanted to deal with the question of family and how we think of family and the kind of the sort of questions of respectability and hypocrisy that are at play in places like the Caribbean. Because every Trinidadian family I know, without exception, has inside and outside branches. The other thing I wanted to deal to, to address was the question of mixed race, because there's a way you, we think of. Um, Racial purity and white supremacy, but racial purity is very much alive within Chinese culture. And so I wanted to, to deal with the question of mixed race within the Chinese uh, community because there's been a, a real interest in the Chinese outside of the major sites of diaspora, like in Latin America and the Caribbean. And when you come to that, the people who get positioned to speak are often positioned people who look like me. right? So like I wanted to deal with what happens when you have uh, mixing and how does people how do people position themselves in relation to these questions? And so that's what it is. It's a half hour doc with her, and it's called Nine by Nine because I'm really taking her version of her own story. Nine died um, about a month ago, um, and one of the things that I'm I talk to her I talk to her every every week. We had actually had a long phone relationship before I finally went to Mexico to meet her. Uh, which is when I first started making the film, and then we went to Trinidad together, etc. But um, what I, one of the things I was happy about is is that her um, stepson. So everything is complicated in my family, right? Like, so I say stepson, but like complicated really his stepson was able to actually gather all her documents and save them, and we'll have them digitized, and uh, probably at the New York Public Library, and then. 
uh, connected to Trinidad because it's a kind of artistic history of the place that still needs to be preserved. And particularly the way when I talked to Jeffrey Holder just before he died, and he hadn't seen the photographs that he had taken of her. She's she's posed as topless, if you can imagine, with pasties on her breast in 47. He was very excited and said, Oh, I need to make a book. And, and you know, he also died uh, um, before he could do anything. But yeah, that's that's me and my <laughs> relation to the show. <laughs> <laughs> friends that brings us to the to the end of a, of a beautiful evening thank you so much everybody for sharing your wonderful wonderful work wonderful words wonderful presence i, I feel very honored We hope you enjoyed this collective reading from multiple members of the Wisdom Council Symposium. I'm Joshua Whitehead, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed as well as the guidance of Mark Stoichel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Abadne, Rebecca Jelaine, Paul Munier, Mark Lynch, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch with us, send us an email at tiahouseyyc or tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.